Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. Joining me today is Brian Kaplan, professor of economics at George Mason University and author of many books. His latest is called Labor Econ Versus the World. Welcome back to the show, Brian. Fantastic to be here, Trevor. So your book covers it covers workplace issues and immigration, and but it also goes into education and then to marriage and then to children. How is all of that classified as labor econ? Now, that's a great question. I guess the answer is it all comes back to Gary Becker. Gary Becker, in a way, is the founder of the modern field, and he defined its you know he defined the borders of the field, and especially he was famous for defining it expansively, this economic way of thinking. But when you step back, there is a lot of logic to it. For example, you really can't understand the labor market without understanding the marriage market because so many of people's choices about whether to work and what kinds of jobs to have depend upon marital status, kids, and that sort of thing. Does that make the labor econ though? I know it would be a, a it's a different class uh, in when you take an economics degree. But is there is there something different about labor than say studying the economics of widgets? Yes. The reason why I wrote this book, really, and what makes me so excited about teaching labor economics, which I do every single year, is that on the one hand, labor economics is really simple and obvious. You just take standard models and apply it to this particular situation. But another way, it's very different because people are so emotionally resistant to applying the standard models to labor that it just takes a lot of work to get people up to square one. The idea that people want to hire fewer people when the wage is higher, it's so obvious. If there wasn't some kind of ideological block that prevented people from admitting this, everyone would admit it. It would be like saying, when you raise the price of asparagus, people want less asparagus. And yet people really don't like this idea because it does mean that, at minimum, a lot of their hopes and dreams about how regulation can fix the world are questionable and maybe counterproductive. Indeed, a lot of what motivates me is I think that the regulations that are so popular are counterproductive. But they have some sort of point in the sense that not buying asparagus because the price went up versus not getting a job. These are very different. They feel very different. And I think that they, I don't think it's irrational that they feel very different to the people involved. And of course, they would say, we're talking about human beings, not asparagus. Of course, they're different. And actually, it's because labor is more important than asparagus that I'd rather write a book about labor than asparagus. The key thing is there are some very important similarities that are very hard for people to accept, such as when you raise the price of either labor or asparagus, expect that people will want to buy less. The difference is that when you raise the price of asparagus, there's some asparagus that rots on the shelf, whereas when you raise the price of labor, then you actually will standardly get higher unemployment, which, again, I say actually you know, is very different in the sense that it's not just a matter of money, and this is one of the main things that I focus on in the book. I try to take an interdisciplinary approach and say, look, it's not just that when someone is unemployed that they aren't getting their labor income. It also means that for most of us, our lives are deprived of a sense of meaning and purpose. You can get a lot of this during COVID, where even when your whole salary is being made up, at least a lot of us felt a great emptiness and loneliness. Like, like, what is the purpose of my existence? I just sit here in a basement by myself and money comes in, but I don't interact with other people. I don't feel like I'm part of anything anymore. And again, it's very tempting for people with elite professional jobs to say, well, sure, that applies to people like us, but regular people at McDonald's don't get any sense of meaning from their job. This is totally wrong, actually, because the main sense of meaning comes from seeing other people and interacting with others, being part of a team. That's the human universal that we really see throughout almost all of the economy. Again, there are, of course, some people who really do just work for money and they would quit the day that they won the lottery. But that actually is not most people. Most people, if they do win the lottery, they, they, they want to go back to work because what else are they going to do all the time? And if, they, and if they go back and don't like it, it's just because people treat them differently. It's not because they actually want to, to sit around doing nothing except consuming luxuries for the rest of their lives. People feel a strong need to do something productive and to be part of a team. Some of the phenomenon that are discussed in the book, some of them are, are attempting to explain at least to some degree, why sometimes what you just said doesn't seem to be true. I mean, if we take this basic assumption that labor markets are going to be something like asparagus markets, but then we have at least the Cardin-Kruger paper, for example, when it comes to minimum wage, that people trout out all the time and say, see, look, these markets did not behave the way people thought they would behave. Um, And so 
we need to explain this through some other mechanism. And you talk about the Carden-Kruger paper, which you think is decent enough, but there could be something else explaining this. I mean, so I knew Alan Kruger while he was still alive. David Card was my PhD microeconomics teacher. You know, it is a well-done paper. It's important to understand it is one paper out of a vast literature that has gotten an enormous amount of attention. It's not clear to me that it is better than 50 other papers. I think the reason why it's got so much attention is that it is one that gives the answer that people are desperately hoping for, even though it really is intuitively quite hard to believe. Uh, well, in the book, I have a essay called The Myopic Empiricism of the Minimum Wage, where I say, look, we actually have a whole body of evidence that can, is very consistent with the simple standard view that when you raise the minimum wage, it reduces employment. Um, you know, just to go through some of the evidence that I reference, there's a lot of research on European unemployment that blames it very strongly on European labor market regulation. This research passes some extra tests like when European countries deregulate, their unemployment rates fall a lot, most notably Germany, Netherlands, UK, which used to look a lot like regular European countries and now have unemployment rates much more like the typical US level. Uh, you know, but then you know, there's just the you know, basic facts of you know, if you get a job application and ask you for your salary expectations, no one in the world puts in a million dollars an hour, right? Everyone has some sense. If I put a number that's too high, this is going to hurt my prospects. So when people say uh, labor economics is counterintuitive, I say, you know, it's not counterintuitive. It's super intuitive. It's counteremotional. It says something that people don't want to hear. But it's more akin to saying you're going to die one day than water runs uphill, right? Water runs uphill, that would be counterintuitive. You're going to die one day. It's like, well, duh, but I don't want to hear it. It's not very nice to say. When we, you talk about that with the European stuff, which I found very interesting, but the, the general belief seems to be, having spent a lot of time in Europe, that they might accept that this causes more unemployment, uh, you know, 10% often in many of these countries which is quite high and it's sort of like the stable line in, in normal times. But what they get instead are better wages, better jobs, the you know, the six weeks vacation, all the kind of happiness indicators that maybe as a society they're like making this trade-off. They're saying, okay, there'll be some more unemployed people and we have happier workers. And you know, I know a lot of Europeans who are pretty happy workers. Uh, so is that a valid trade-off? Or I guess the second question too is, I mean, should we even be like collectively deciding to make that trade-off? <laughs> and then is it a valid one if that is so? Right. This is a very tempting argument just to say, look, the Europeans have realized, look, we're going to regulate labor markets. It's going to cause high unemployment, but it's totally worth it because the people who have jobs will have a better situation and the people without jobs will just put them on welfare. No problem. They're going to do just fine. What I say is this totally ignores a large psychological literature on what unemployment does to human beings as well as a similar literature on how important mere cash income actually is. And the punchline of this is, first of all, that unemployment by itself causes immense misery. You can see that even if you go and make up all of the earnings, unemployed people seem to be very unhappy. And you know, it fits with the story where employment is a key part of people's sense of purpose, identity, it's, it's their social group, it's being part of a team. So just saying, oh, well, who cares if you're thrown out of work, we'll put you on welfare, is not actually a thoughtful answer. I mean, honestly, it's one that I think more economists would be more would be sufficiently psychologically blind to, to find appealing. But if you just think more like, and you know, not just a human being, but just you know, bring in other disciplines, you realize, well, look, you know, like this is like it's not just about the money; it's also about having something to do with your life and feeling and feeling useful. So I'd say actually the European system is very bad for human happiness overall, especially when you look and you see that the extra payoff that people get from higher wages in terms of happiness just isn't that much. So really what you're doing is you're focusing on something that is not actually that important for human well-being, which is just pure cash and doing this at the expense of allowing people to go and find meaningful employment. And again, also very important to understand that the very best way to get a better job is to get a not so good job first. And it's the way of the world. Like your first job isn't going to be your dream, but it is what qualifies you for promotion. It's what qualifies you to apply to other jobs. You get a lot of basic training. Right? Uh, again, we don't call it that usually. We don't think that you go to McDonald's and a key part of your compensation is basic job training. But the fact that we don't so label it doesn't mean that it's not happening. 
Of course it's happening. You say, oh, wow, you have to show up for a job. You have to be on time. People think it's a big deal whether you're on time or not. Oh, all right, that's good to know. And if I internalize that, that's going to be very helpful for me in the future. Right, so uh, now on top of this, also worth pointing out that just measured by even dollar income, uh, you know, almost all European countries would have considerably lower pay than you would usually see in the U.S., uh, the main thing that you will see is that they often will have higher benefits. Uh, part of this, again, is just regulation. But, you know, like the worker pays for these higher benefits. So, like, like you know, fine, I'll have lower wages, but then I get extra extra vacation. Hmm. If the law wasn't around, I could have bargained for that on my own if I really wanted that. Right? And then on top of it, it's also true that when you have really high rates of taxation, it is a nice way to effectively slip people on tax income just to go and give them goodies rather than cash. Right? So it's, you know, like when you have really high taxes, it's more common for employers to give you free or subsidized housing, and the governments then in many countries will not treat that as income. You know, it, this, is, this is not a sign of you'll just say, a more joyful lifestyle so much as, gee, if I have to pay 60% marginal tax rate, is there some way that you could go and give me the money without really giving me the money officially? And yeah, like that's a lot of what the European system is like. It also, of course, was the U.S. system when we had much higher tax rates. I remember around 1980, I guess it would be 81, my dad got a company car suddenly, right? And if you look at the tax rates at the time, you could, ah, well, why are they giving a car? So as well, this is a company car and uh, we're, uh, you know, you don't need to drive your own car around anymore. The company pays for it. The company pays for repairs. The company pays for all this stuff. But, and uh, we're not going to look very hard if you drive it to all of your own activities and take your family on a vacation or whatever. That's not a big deal. Just to enjoy the company car. Right. And this is, did they take it away when the tax yeah, rates they went did. down? They did. We only had that company car. I don't think we even had it for a year. It was actually. about one or two years. Yeah, yeah it I was think a very, very, yeah, it was very brief period when you just start handing out non-tax, you know, non, or untaxed goodies to employer to employees, rather than a raise, because it's an especially good time to try to well, you know, trick the tax man. Right, I mean, saying like not that you know, or I mean, again, there's no there's no real trickery afoot. They just have some stupid rules, and then people say, "Hey, can we do this? Okay, let's do it." Well, in addition to comp or aside from compensation, we always we there's a lot of these things with minimum wage, benefits package, marginal tax rates, but there's a lot of regulations that kind of hamper the fluidity of a labor market. And it's sometimes in some European countries, it's very difficult to fire people. Which has some interesting effects. I have a my sister in law who lives in Australia, which has a very very constrained labor market. If you go to Australia, one thing you might see, for example, well you you see very few people serving tables, except for extremely high end restaurants. Almost even even middle tier restaurants have a get go to the counter and get like a flag and then go to your table and then someone brings it, which I suspect is to be blamed on minimum wage. But my sister-in-law works at a very sort of boutique headhunting firm that works to match workers up to openings with psychological tests to make sure that it's exactly the right person for the job. And I suspect that this, this whole industry has something to do with the inability to fire people. That, that you need to figure out some way to hire the right person. Right. So Europe is notorious for difficulty of firing people. The U.S. is notorious for employment lawsuits. In both cases, it's basically the same idea where it's like, well, do I want to give this person a chance? What if they don't work out? In some systems, it's like, gee, it's going to be really hard to fire this person. In other ones, like, fire anyone you want, but maybe they're going to come and sue you because they'll say that you treated them unfairly. Uh, yeah, so you know, these are you know, you know some other really important regulations I talk about. In terms of the pure logic of them, when I teach my students, I'll often say, imagine if anytime you went on a date with anyone, you had to marry them at the end, right? And, and how would that change your behavior? It's like, uh, gee, I wouldn't want to go out on dates, right? And I'd also want to have a lot of things that are date-like while they're explicitly not called dates, or maybe we'll go and have a group activity, which is not at all a date, but it serves many of the same purposes, Right? And you can see these are all the ways that people would avoid getting trapped with someone in a bad match. And then when you th put it that way, it's like, why do we even have these rules? Like if all that's going to happen is people try like hell to avoid getting stuck, why not just be honest and say, look, you know, we, like, good matches are hard to find. And this is not – and, and to, have, to go in with an attitude of being ready to point fingers and recriminate is just not a functional way for any society to function. 
Uh, it's not a good way for social interaction, romantic interaction, and it's not good for labor interaction. Right? And again, it just comes back to if you know you're stuck, if you give someone a chance, you don't want to give them a chance. So either you'll do what you're talking about where you're just super cautious about hiring in the first place, or maybe you'll go and hire family members where you have extra economic leverage. We can call up your, your, your sister and say, hey, that nephew of mine is a real jerk. Why don't, you, why don't you go and yell at him when he gets home to, to go and tell him that he's, like, like he's expected to pull his own weight at the family restaurant or whatever. Uh, so there's that. Right, but there's there's also just saying, eh, let's let's just you know, like just be very you know like not hire many people, or most obviously, and this is where the counterproductivity of the laws becomes very clear. It's like, hmm, well, who is demographically likely to sue us? Well, the people that that, that people think need to be protected are likely to sue you because they are protected. Who's safe? Safe people would be. Well, you know, straight white males under the age of 40, then they can't sue you for, you know, for racial discrimination, gender discrimination, age discrimination, sexual orientation discrimination. They actually are, in fact, the safest people to hire. I mean, a uh, example that I, or you know, like an exam problem I've often given to students is, imagine this law. Suppose we have the regular minimum wage for white workers, and then we have double the minimum wage for black workers. What do you think about that? And almost everyone's like, no, that would make people not want to hire black workers. But really, what do discrimination laws amount to? It's a system where some workers carry almost no legal liability and others carry a lot of legal liability. And then there's the, like, the Kafkaesque feature of all this, of course, is someone who really just was truly prejudiced would just not hire you in the first place. He wouldn't hire you and then fire you for no good reason. So in fact, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I mean, I've always thought that Becker thesis, this idea that discrimination, the market will solve discrimination, kind of, at least in something like the Jim Crow South, seemed to underplay how much people's discrimination was worth to them, and that therefore, it, what you couldn't wait around, right, as a as an African American being like, well, I'm waiting for them to go out of business. So the people who hire African Americans will outcompete the people who don't hire African Americans. But as I say, but the people ended up being like really, really racist, many of them down in the South. And two, you can't really wait around for that. So is there much value in that kind of libertarian argument about discrimination? Yeah, I think there's great value actually. Well, here's the thing is we really just don't have any good labor data from that period. As far as I know, but in all of the countries and periods that we haven't been able to study, it actually is quite easy to explain gaps in earnings between races and genders just using some very simple observable measures of productivity, of education, training, experience, occupational choice. You can go very far in understanding the gender gap just by looking at differences in college majors between men and women, with men being a lot more likely to do STEM, women being a lot less likely to do STEM. I mean, even the Jim Crow South, if you imagine going and just imposing a discrimination law on a very racist population, is the result going to be they say, oh, my God, I guess I have to go and hire people that I don't like? Or, no, now I'm even less inclined to go and hire people that I don't like. It is important to understand that in the Jim Crow South, the differences in productivity between black and white workers would have been extremely large because of what economists call pre-market factors. You know, you know, it can very well be that employers are judging you fairly and yet the whole society is so unfair that when you arrive, you... You know, like the odds that you're a black engineer in the Jim Crow South are vanishingly low. doesn't mean that, en that engineering firms are mistreating you relative to what you're able to do. It's, you can just say, most obviously, the government's been treating you really badly during this whole time. Um, in terms of whether it is actually likely that pure private discrimination with no support from government would have done a lot, I mean, so it's really hard to get data from places where, this is, where, where we can do really good tests, but here is what I think is very striking. I think it's almost sure that South African apartheid, the levels of racism were quite a bit higher than they were in the Jim Crow South. It's hard to know for sure, but that seems very plausible. And yet, what was apartheid all about? Was it a system where they said you can discriminate if you feel like it? No. Apartheid was about saying you must discriminate whether you want to or not in favor of white job applicants. That was the system, right? And if you look at the arguments that people gave, it really was along the lines of, look, sure, there are some good white employers who care about our white race, but there's other ones that are just greedy, and all they want to do is just hire the best worker for the job, and they don't care about race, and it wouldn't make any difference at all to them if white workers live in poverty. These horrible jerks, let's go and pass laws to make sure that they can't do that kind of thing. 
So that is you know, a pretty extreme case, and yet it still seems like that was a very big part of the system is just trying to make sure that people must discriminate like it or not. Again, my, my very favorite example, and I do have an essay in Labor Econ versus the World on this, is mandatory discrimination against illegal immigrants. So I would say that illegal immigrants are probably one of the very least popular groups in modern America. It's one of the groups where people in the grocery store will talk bad about without looking around their shoulder to make sure that there's no one who will be offended by it. So they'll say, oh, these goddamn illegal immigrants. Like I've heard this kind of thing, just standing in line at a grocery store in liberal northern Virginia, you know, never mind other parts of the country. And yet, if you were to say, well, given all this resentment against illegal immigrants, we don't need to have any government regulations preventing their employment because who would hire them given this high level of resentment? And yet almost everyone would say, oh, come on, we know that there's some greedy employers who don't care about our country, don't care about native-born workers. They'll go and hire them at the first chance they get. We have to have these laws. We have to have strict enforcement. And what I say in this essay is this really does teach this lesson of Gary Becker maybe better than any other one, which is like no one I ever met thinks that employers will just pass up the opportunity to hire illegal workers for lower pay just you know, in, as long as it's legal. Almost everyone thinks that if we want to go and stop this, we have to make it illegal. We have to punish it. There needs to be enforcement. Even if most employers are regular Americans with their regular bigotry against illegal immigrants, still, if you're choosing between living that bigotry and making money, we know there's just a ton of people who will just say, well, whatever, you know, like the guy, the guy's the best for the job. I'm hiring him. I mean, well, whatever. You get those, that inference I think is often lost. Uh, you said it when it, talking about apartheid, but even in Jim Crow South, the existence of mandatory discrimination by like legal, legally prescribed discrimination, you cannot hire a black person or serve them, implies the existence of businesses that wanted to do that because otherwise it would be a worthless law and a flip side on apartheid and for illegal immigrants, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it all comes down to there's a lot of heterogeneity in human behavior. Even in the most racist society, there's a bunch of people like, yeah, whatever. Just like you can go to societies we think of as very religious, and there's a bunch of people there who actually very quietly are like, oh, I don't care for any of this stuff. This guy's kind of stupid. I hope I, but you know, you just don't you don't say it really loudly because you don't want everyone to get mad at you. But when nobody's looking, it's okay, huh? Nobody's looking. All right, let's make some money. So let's talk about immigration. Uh, the the reasoning seems pretty clear. We've talked about this as a normal good uh, and it, behaving very much like markets, labor markets behaving very much like other other types of markets. So immigrate, we open the borders tomorrow, all uh, Brian Kaplan's, you know, whatever, your, your, uh, your dream world. And then there's a significant number of immigrants who come over very quickly. Maybe not as many as people think, but yeah, but a significant amount. So there you have it. <laughs> yeah, you have a supply just absolute shock. Uh, if I if I went uh, to an asparagus market, a, a farmers market, and just airdropped farmer goods over it in a you know biplane, the people working that market would be pretty upset that I just airdropped a bunch of free produce onto their market. Why would that not, exact same thing not basically happen with immigrants? In a sense, it does. But it's important to remember, so suppose that we could go and just get an infinite amount of asparagus for free. Would this not be a wonderful thing? And world hunger. I mean, it's not going to be, it's going to be monotonous, but nevertheless, no one ever starves to death. Uh, you know, the problem, in, the problem in understanding economics really comes down to this. For any change, you can always think of people who gain and people who lose. So like even for something like a COVID vaccine, who loses from that? Well, morticians are losing out. So on the one hand, a bunch of people live. On the other hand, it's bad for morticians. What's the net effect? Who knows? And I said, actually, we do know. There's a very good heuristic that we can apply here to understand what's really going on. And it's the heuristic is this. Uh, the secret of mass consumption is mass production. The secret of mass consumption is mass production. Always keep your eye on production. If the total production of humanity rises, then average human living standards go up, even though, of course, in the real world, there's losers for every positive change that you can think of. Now, in the case of immigration, the positive change is immense, precisely because the productivity of immigrants in countries that get them is much higher than in countries that send them. 
And what this means is that when you move people from a country like Haiti, where workers have low productivity, to a country like the U.S., where workers have high productivity, you don't just enrich the U.S. while impoverishing Haiti. You enrich humanity by using labor in a much more effective way. Right? And yes, are the people directly competing with the Haitians going to be worse off? Uh, they probably will be. But it's important to remember that there's all of the customers of the Haitians. They're producing all this stuff, which means that there's someone else that actually gets to benefit from this. So you know, really the best way to think about the labor market effects of immigration are you know, a bunch of immigrants who are in your exact occupation, who do just what you do, they are bad for you. However, they're good for everyone that consumes those services. And on the other hand, all of the occupations that you are not in whose products you consume, immigration in those areas is good for you. And then the question is, well, what's the net effect? Again, net effect comes down to what's the total impact on human production. And it's really easy to see. Um, you know, so you know, this is really obvious for something like agriculture, where you can just look at a Mexican farmer, see what he grows in Mexico, move him to U.S. agribusness, see he grows 10 times as much food here, and then realize, wow, that enriched humanity a large amount because now that worker contributes so much more. Same in manufacturing. You take someone from primitive home production in a poor country to a modern U.S. factory, production skyrockets. And again, like, will, are there some people lose out? Always. Even morticians lose from COVID vaccines. Let us, let us never forget their horrible plight. But at the same time, let's keep the big picture of, yeah, wasn't it more important that a million people don't die than that the morticians keep doing well? Right? And like, what is, what, what, what is it that gives humanity the highest overall living standard is crucial. And then like, you know, the only part of um, the increase in productivity that's a little bit puzzling or a little bit hard to grasp is how does it really raise human productivity if you move someone from Haiti where he shines shoes to Miami where he shines shoes using exactly the same kit? Right? You know, it's like it's the same number of shoes shines per day. So how has productivity gone up? And tell your member, oh, wait, the whole point of a service is to save human time. And when you save the time of people whose time is more valuable, you have in that way enriched humanity more. If you save Bill Gates five minutes of time, you've done a lot more for the world when you save five minutes of my time. Same thing with whenever people hire nannies or gardeners or food delivery people or anything else. Like even if you look and say, well, I don't see the productivity increase, like, well, you're not paying attention. The productivity increase is the time that was saved of the customer. Right? So for all these ways, we can see the rise in productivity and again, the focus just on the you know, hunting for people who happen to lose. Like You can always find them because they're always there. The Industrial Revolution hurt some people. The internet has hurt a whole lot of people. And yet think about the overall net effect. That is the right perspective. But doesn't it make some amount of sense, at least politically, and I, and I know you're not a, a politician, <laughs> uh, but- um, A student of politics, to, a scholar of politics, to, Trevor, you know that. <laughs> <laughs> but to uh, at least mitigate from a, a standpoint, you know, if you said, this kind of reminds me of, if we did do, you, you, there are things that you could change very drastically in the world that probably you should change, like not just labor regulations, immigrant regulations. Uh, we should probably radically reach like re readjust the Washington metro system, for example. And there are probably many stops that should be moved or changed in some way. But I also understand that if we took away the Clarendon metro stop, there would be a lot of people who'd be very hurt by that in terms of their property values. So should we try to mitigate the effects of what is overall a good thing, if, we, if it is in fact a good thing to change this around by compensating those people who are hurt immediately? So in this way, does it does the kind of welfare state work workers comp for say uh, Native Americans without high school education who might be hurt the most by an influx of immigrants? Is that is that makes sense in some in some way? It depends upon how careful you are to actually target losers and how careful you are to not wind up killing the source of the gains in the process. So. Uh, in my book, Open Borders, The Science and Ethics of Immigration, I talk about something that is called Keyhole Solutions. And this says, look, all right, so I've been trying to go and sell you on this big policy reform. I can see you're still kind of skeptical. How about we go and we craft a narrowly tailored remedy for exactly the problems that are bothering you just for the sake of argument? Right now, this, this really comes down to, look, I don't even have to agree with this, but I can say, look, if this is the price of letting immigrants in, Maybe it would be a good idea to say that immigrants have to pay higher taxes and that we use those high, the, the revenue that we get from immigrants to go and compensate natives who are losing out. 
right? Uh, and I would say that as long as you keep it narrowly tailored, this is not a crazy idea anyway. In the end, uh, you know, like, like I, I think it, it comes out to, you know, not only unfair, but also just you know, sets a bad precedent. And, you know, and it's quite arbitrary because there's a whole lot of things where we never even bother to think about compensation. You know, like if it is the price of reform, then great. In practice, I don't think that reform often works that way. I think most reform actually is more big bang where it's just like, well, we're getting rid of rent control. If you lose out, sorry, tough luck. All right, moving on. That's the way that you actually get reform you know, generally in the real world. Every now and then there'll be like a little buyout for some especially vociferous people that managed to be blockading the process and then you go and throw them a bone. But like, like, yeah, you know, taxi, taxi drivers yeah, and Uber. Yeah. You know, like, you know, like, do, do we owe them something? Yeah, yeah. So like basically nothing's being done for them as far as I know. Right. And yeah, that's really for the best uh, because again, you know, like otherwise, like, yeah, like we'd have to go and compensate the morticians when, when we're going and, and saying, Oh, there's a COVID vaccine. Sorry, fewer COVID people are dying. So uh, yeah, sucks to be you. It is a slippery slope. Yeah, that is, that goes pretty far. Okay. So, we're still in Brian Kaplan's Brian Kaplan's universe. We have much fewer labor restrictions. We have basically open borders, so we have a hundred million new Americans here. Uh, depends on the time. On the time, yeah. I, mean, I think over ten years, yeah. that's pretty reasonable, honestly. And yeah. I'm not worried. So now we need to make sure that they become good workers, uh, and that they come here coming from, say, Haiti. So we need more schools, and we need more universities. And we need all these kind of things to make them into better workers, which I mean, that gives jobs to, you know, more teachers and stuff. So, so isn't that next where we should be spending our money on, on things to help the productivity of the new Americans who maybe didn't have the education that they would have had here in, in Haiti, for example. Well, Trevor, it sounds like you might've read another one of my books, uh, the case against <laughs> education. I do, you know, I, I do devote a section in labor econ versus the world to this topic under is the part is called education without romance, you know, what I would say is this is a separate issue. It doesn't logically follow from anything else that I'm saying, uh, but rather I have a contrarian perspective on education that you know, winds up meshing ultimately with what, what else I'm saying. But again, you could believe everything else I've been saying about labor markets and regulation, or, and labor regulation and immigration without buying what I am now about to tell you about education. Of course, I think I'm right about education too. And it comes down to this. I don't think the schools actually do much to prepare people for the labor market. I don't think they actually train people in useful skills very well. I think the, you know, it is true that educational credentials are well paid in especially the U.S. economy. But I think the main reason is that it stamps you or certifies you as being a good worker rather than transforming you from a bad worker into a good worker. Selfishly speaking, it doesn't really matter exactly why that degree in engineering gets you a job in finance. But socially, it matters a lot because if this story that I'm telling you, often called the signaling model, is right, that education pays because you get stamps in your forehead, if everybody gets a lot of stamps, this doesn't mean everybody gets a good job. It means that you need even more stamps in order to get those good jobs, right? This is called credential inflation. I, in my work, I actually wound up reading a lot of sociologists who are much more interested in credential inflation than economists for some reason. But really, it comes down to the education in the American workforce has risen dramatically, but the actual skill required to do jobs in the American labor force has not actually increased very much. There are, there are plenty of jobs that are basically stagnant. Other jobs that are actually easier than they used to be, like being a cashier is easier than it used to be, where waiters used to have to do math. Waiters used to actually take out a piece of paper and add up your bill and then make change. That's not how it works anymore. Right. So anyway, what I say is that we just have a very misguided view of what education does. Of course, it does do some, teach some useful skills, but I say the most of the reason why education pays off in the real world these days is because it certifies you, stamps you, it signals. And with the, the, if I'm right about this, then we cannot expect to get a big increase in productivity of immigrants or anyone else just by having them get more school. Rather, what we really need is for people to get real experience on the job. Uh, the slogan that I like for what I, what I have to say about education is this. People like to think about education as being job training. In reality, it is a passport to the real training, which happens on the job. This is how people actually get good at doing stuff is by doing it, not by sitting and listening to a professor who has never even done the job they're going to do talk about an unrelated topic. Obviously. Now, <laughs> now you, you know, I, I, I've read the case against education and we'll put – uh, the free thoughts we did with that in the show, in the links here. Great idea, Trevor. I, <laughs> Brilliant. Thinking about 
thinking about your essays this time when I was reading them, some of which predated the book, it struck me if we go back to your the Gary Becker discrimination conversation that that the biggest hole in your argument is the the hundred dollar bills. I wouldn't even call them twenty dollar bills lying on the sidewalk for businesses to non-conform and, and people to create educational alternative educational foundations because credentialism isn't per se bad. Like it, it, you can have a runaway effect, right? Where you get a destructive equilibrium where suddenly everyone's getting stickers on their head, but like, it's not per se bad. You could have good credentialing and bad credentialing. So why aren't there a bunch of, of upstarts to make good credentialing and a bunch of businesses to say, we don't care anymore about your masters in English. Uh, we're going to hire people who are who cost less but can do the job just as well. In the case of the masters in English, uh, probably the market already has that covered. Uh, there, I think there, you're there's probably the new, new research. New, maybe the other there, degrees. There, probably the best paper ever written on this just came out saying that those kinds of master's degrees have no payoff in the labor market at all, uh, or maybe a negative payoff, <laughs> right? But um, it's a fantastic question because it really gets to the heart of what the Bakarian critique of discrimination really says. So again, like, there's one version that just says, look, employers know exactly what you as an individual are like. And whatever your true self is, there's an employer out there who will look into your soul and see whether you're, whether you're good or bad, and then will treat you accordingly. All right, so that's one story. Another story, though, is, look, you can't expect people to have that level of finely grained knowledge of every human being. Rather, what employers are doing is they're looking for the predictable signs of productivity. So if there's a predictable, if uh, they can look at you and say, well, look, typically someone who fits this profile is going to be this good, I'm going to make that person an offer and it'll probably work out. That is you know, a more reasonable version of Becker's story. It still will predict that you should not expect that if two groups are equal in productivity, that the lower productivity group is going to be, that the, rather that the group that is less popular is going to wind up doing worse. But at the same time, it does mean that you can be stuck in a situation where if you can't somehow persuade employers that you're different from your profile, then you might do poorly. Or on the other hand, if you can, if you can trick employers into thinking, or if you, can, if you can get a profile that is actually misleadingly positive, you can actually get a better job than you really deserve, which uh, almost everyone who's looked at the world has seen that as well. So yeah, I think what, you know, like, you know, what's going on in the real world is that on the one hand, it is true that more educated workers are on average better. But at the same time, there are what I call diamonds in the rough, people who are really good but don't have the right credentials. And yeah, for them, actually, it's really hard for them to get paid their productivity. Why? Because their application is in a stack of hundreds of applications. Employers don't have the time to go and examine every individual person, every individual candidate. They're really looking for a reason to throw away most of the stack of applications. They can narrow it down to a reasonable group. And so if an employer gets 300 applications, they throw out 270, and you say, hey, I know for a fact there were four awesome people in the, in the the that you just threw away. You say, well, can you tell me which four? No, I just know it's four out of 270 are great. So yeah, well, that's totally useless to me, right? And that is, I say, why you really do need to get these credentials, because if you have the ability to get them, but you don't, then the world really does hold it against you. Uh, you might manage to somehow talk your way into a better job. And actually, I, you know, during, this la during the last year, I've been telling everybody, look, if you want to get a better job, now's the time. If you want to go and skip some stupid credentialing and just say, hey, like, and just talk your way into a better job, like maybe you'll fail, but there's never been a better time since World War II probably to just go up to an employer and say, look, I know I'm not a traditional candidate, but like, I'll totally, I'll, I'm, I'm, like, I'm really into this stuff. You know, just give me a chance. You know, like, you won't regret it. I'll work for peanuts until, you know, for the first month. Just try anything to go and talk your way into a better position. You know, especially if there's just some, you know, like, you, you find the work that you're doing to be soul crushing. You don't like it. There's some other industry you want to be in. Now is the time just to find someone that's willing to give you your, uh, give you your big break. Right? Because this is when employers are really open-minded compared to normal times. Uh, they're, they're not getting the usual giant stack of applications and then throwing almost all of them away. Now it's like, huh, could work. All right, we need someone to sit in that chair. Let's try them. Well, that this your uh, hypothetical about you know 270 applications find the four who are diamonds in the rough. It seems to be the question of whether or not that is worth it is very much related to employment policies. And this goes back to my sister-in-law example, that, she, that 
the employment policies of a given country. So if at will employment means if they don't work out, we'll fire them. And But if we need to find that diamond in the rough, uh, but we can't fire them, then you make, make sense to hire someone like my sister-in-law or start a business that helps people find those diamonds in the rough, which I still think that that business model could be viable. We just don't know how to do it yet. It might be easier to do it now. Right. Yeah. So I would actually say like everything you're saying is true and government does make it harder for employers to feel safe giving someone a chance if they don't fit the usual profile for worker. Although I am a very psychologically minded economist, so I'm not the kind of economist, oh, psychology, what do they know? Yeah, they actually know a lot. They study how human beings think and feel and you can go and make fun of them and say, well, the study was debunked, but what about all the studies that weren't debunked? Yeah, it's like you have a higher estimation of, <laughs> of psychologists maybe than I do. <laughs> right, so, you know, so like, like here is one very basic thing that psychologists and sociologists of, of work have found, which is human beings do not like firing other human beings. It is you know, Most people are quite squeamish about it, So, which means that if you go and give someone a chance, even if it's totally legal to fire them if they start disappointing you, there are a lot of, of businesses that will say, well, I mean, he's not absolutely terrible. And now that we know his kids and we know the names of his, the name of his dog and like there, you know, there, are, there are a lot of people who really do not just instantly go and fire people because they've realized that they've made a mistake. Part of this actually can be explained by a totally standard economic model. If you, when you hire somebody, you think they're at the 50th percentile of, of expectations and then they work for a month and you're like, no, he's only at the 47th. Well, you don't want to go and fire someone to go and pick up those extra three percentiles of quality. But if someone, you think they're at the 50th, they turn out they're at the 15th. That's where you say, gee, yeah, I think we'd be better off going back to the drawing board. But then, well, but it's kind of mean to do it to this guy. And like, like I don't know, he's going to have a lot of trouble getting another job. In the book, I talk about a rather perverted hiring strategy or rather firing strategy that's called de-hiring. Right? which seems to be in, uh, very common now in American businesses. So it's like you got a worker, you either feel sorry for them and so you don't want to fire them, or maybe you're worried that they are going to sue you and so you don't want to fire them. Instead, you go up to them and you say, look, you know, this isn't working out. You're a fantastic worker, but this just isn't a good match. And I strongly encourage you to find another job in the next three months. And if any prospective new employer calls, I will tell them the absolute truth, which is you are so super wonderful and we're just heartbroken to lose you. Right. And of course, the real story is they are celebrating. They're skipping for joy. Well, why don't they <laughs> why don't they lower their wages? That's that's the question. That's I know it's a confounding one in labor economics, but it does seem to make these behaviors you're talking about and the fact that people don't have their wages makes the markets inefficient in many, many ways. Uh, correct. So I, I can't remember whether I actually talked about it much in this particular book, but again, part of the reason is regulation. If you're at the minimum wage, you can't lower it further, right? Uh, or if they're, you, you know, like if you have pro-union laws, then it may be really hard to go and do something like this. You've already been, uh, you know, you've already had your arm twisted into going and signing a three-year contract with equal wages for everybody else. Uh, but anyway, there's also a lot of psychological evidence on how it is that people respond to this kind of thing. And it seems the problem is this, when you cut the, uh, the wages of a worker, uh, especially when you cut their nominal hourly wage, right? So cutting hours or going and cutting bonuses doesn't seem to be nearly as jarring. But when you cut their actual officially hourly wage, this makes people very upset. A normal reaction to this is for the productivity fall further, such that you really could be just chasing down, uh, chasing the rabbit down the hole, where he's like, well, you're not very good. I'm going to cut your wage. Oh, now it's productivity worse. Cut his wage further. This is especially hard, of course, if you want to cut the pay of your entire workforce, such that it'll be quite hard to figure out who's actually not doing their job anymore, right? Or if there's all sorts of hidden ways that workers could get back at you, they could do shoplifting or they could just be rude to customers, right? So I think this is, you know, another important part of it is that, you know, people, you know, so like, as I said, like, like, uh, people's uh, sense of identity, their, their sense of meaning and productivity in life are wrapped up in their jobs, which means that you can hurt their feelings fairly easily. Right now, that is partly just human psychology, and I can't blame government for basic human psychology. What I will blame government for is amplifying the problems that already exist. So there's, there, there is, there, like, you know, like, even if government did nothing, I'd say there'd be a general tendency to avoid cutting nominally hourly wages, general tendency to avoid firing people. But then what government regulation does is take these basic you know, 
somewhat dysfunctional human urges and then codify them and say, no, 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 you have to do it this way, which you know ties employers' hands, but it also probably helps reinforce the sheer sacredness of the norm, right? So if you know, if it's legal, then maybe you know, legal to cut nominal, you know, hourly nominal wages, maybe five or 10% of firms will do it in a year. And if five or 10% of firms do it in a year, then maybe people say, well, I've heard about that. It's not like the worst thing you could possibly do. Whereas if it's illegal and then we're almost illegal and then you do it, it's like, holy moly, these people are monsters and I hate them. And how can I get my revenge? <laughs> and you don't want your workforce to be plotting revenge against you. That is not this a recipe for a, good, for a good, well-functioning business. Uh, so in Kaplantopia, um, we have so one of the things that you say at the beginning. Uh, you talk about some standard beliefs that people have that we've, that we've so many of which we've addressed about immigration education. Another one is that the primary reason for the increase in the quality of our lives as workers, such as the weekend and vacation and benefits, is because of government regulation. Um, but we have all these regulations now. And so we open the borders, we take away a ton of labor restrictions, we take away funding for education. What do we see? Sounds great, Trevor. I mean, how, <laughs> how great does this get, though? I mean, I, I, was th- I was trying to figure out how Pollyannish I thought you might be. Like, how great, to, you, know, you know, we have a, they say we, well, right now it's a little bit different, but you say we have 3% growth rate. I mean, do, do we radically advance society at a much faster pace in a way that would kind of blow everyone's mind. You would put some amount of money on that bet, I think. I mean, for, for total GDP, I think almost any economist would say, I'm scared, but total GDP is going to go through the roof because just pop, to your population is the biggest determinant of total GDP. Uh, you know, like, like, at least in the short run, if you can get a large increase in population, then you're almost certain to get a large increase in GDP. It's a super reliable predictor, and it's not hard to understand why. More people equals more stuff getting made, and that's what GDP comes down to. So yeah, I mean, like, I mean, I think it would actually be easy to, easy to go and double the size of the U.S. economy relative to trend in 20 years, right? I think that would be real easy, actually. In terms of the you know so like like again like almost all that from the immigration because it's just getting a lot more people here, and again you know, like not by going and draining GDP of other countries but by increasing the GDP of the world by moving low productivity uh, people from low productivity countries to high productivity countries. Right now, I'm crafting a bet on the Ukrainian diaspora. You know, comes down to it. I think it's quite likely that in ten years, you know, the migrants that are leaving will have a higher GDP than you than than, than Ukraine does. Because Ukraine is the poorest country per person in Europe, and if you move 20% of the workers in Ukraine to countries where they are earning six times as much, that's enough, right? That's enough to go and have the diaspora out earn the country, which I think is true for has been true for Cuba for quite a while. Like all the Cubans outside of Cuba earn a lot more than the Cubans that are still in Cuba, even though most of them did not actually leave. Anyway, so immigration is what gives us the really big bang in terms of the change in overall living standards, I say, I think, you know, like, so obviously immigrants are going to have much higher living standards, but yeah, I think that there will be a large increase in living standards for people in the U.S. as well, because remember, someone has to buy all that stuff that the immigrants make, right? Some of that, like the agriculture and the manufacturing might get exported to the rest of the world, and so a lot of the benefit leaks out to other countries. Uh, But on the other hand, for the services, basically all that almost has to be done domestically. So who's going to eat in all the restaurants that the immigrants create? It's going to be Nate. Yeah. yeah. Well, I also remember the education component too, because I was I was running this through my head. So we, let's say we have uh, by not subsidizing college, it doesn't mean people stop going to college. Aside from even primary education, but the, it means that. But it means that probably the people who shouldn't go to college become much less likely to go to college, which means they don't get a you know incur debt and then have four years or six years of productivity lost. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. those people, some of those yeah. people go and start a restaurant yeah. or start a business. And then they have workers who are available because the immigrants came. Oh yeah. Um, this is all getting very, yeah. very fun. Yeah, it is. And, and by the way, you're right to, to think about six years as being the amount of time that a marginal student would take to finish a four year degree. And if they're going full time, uh, this is one of the many dirty secrets of higher education, which is that most people don't finish a four year degree in four years. I mean, like probably the easiest way to think about it is just the number of years of education that people right now are spending 
learning stuff that they're never going to need to know, and they could be working instead. So basically, if you just picture increasing the number of years that the average uh, you know, American works during their career by two or three years per lifetime, right? And again, that is again talking about what would that be? So you know, not quite a ten, you know, something less than a ten percent uh, increase in total labor supply, but. A whole lot, and you can of course remember that if you say, as the parent of a college student, you're probably supporting that kid while he's in school, right? Wouldn't it be nice if he could become self-supporting at an earlier age? And yeah, that sounds pretty good, right? And again, and if I'm right about all this credential inflation, this does not mean that these less educated people then go and get crummy jobs. Rather, it means that they basically just fast forward or leapfrog to the same jobs they would have had otherwise. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's really a society where people just achieve financial independence at a much younger age, where your opportunities as a consumer are vastly greater. You just think about all of the products that you might be receiving. And then, you know, honestly, I think like a lot of, a lot of it, you need to think about the services. So, um, you know, so you probably know it's quite common in Latin American countries for a middle-class family to have some personal servants, which in the U.S. we think of as a clear mark of being upper-class. Right, and a lot of what would happen with immigration is that this would become a made a, a part of life for not just really rich Americans, but for a much wider segment of society. It would be very normal for a middle class family to say, "Yeah, we're just, we just have a full time nanny. It's it's a really great deal for us. Great deal for her." Um, yeah, so I get, yeah, yeah. sounds like I could stand. I could stand to live in that. Yeah, way. I mean, yeah, I mean yeah. I'm not. I'm not talking yeah. about the, the the maid. I'm just talking about the the, the <laughs> untapped human potential yeah. getting tapped. That sounds pretty nice. Right. I mean, to me, like, like honestly, just the, you know, the, this is the excitement to me of any kind of vibrant and growing economy. It's the excitement of being in Silicon Valley in the round, like in, like in the early 2000s, the excitement of being in the, you know, say like New York City during, in, in the early years of the Industrial Revolution, right? Or being in Eastern Europe after the collapse of communism. It's like, well, gee, things are really going to change. And we had this crippling, crushing system, but it's all we know. What now? And it's like, what now? Something better. I don't know what, but it's going to be great. Let's just see what happens. I'm so excited. Wow. Big things are happening. I mean, to me, especially after COVID, it's just like, I'm so tired of this, this crushing rule following. And like, can't we just have something different to talk about and just like watch something grow and expand and like, and just be surprised by what happens in a pleasant way. Just the last time you're just like pleasantly surprised like wow wow look at that wow it's like oh i didn't expect that to happen oh well uh but then i like this other thing so you know, meaning that this this was the excitement of early silicon valley i wasn't there but i i know people who were and it's just like a really fun time and just to imagine that being our normal way of life sounds a lot better to me than what we got now Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at libertarianism.org.